Welcome to Disciples Make. On this podcast, we share the testimonies and explore the craftsmanship of Christ's disciples who are makers in various fields and professions from around the world. Make sure to visit our website, disciplesmake.com, or our YouTube channel for our visual library and more. We exist to encourage the believer and to reach those seeking truth. We know our Maker. Therefore, we go and make. Lord, I pray that you would cause all things to go well, that it would all be for the glory of Jesus, that through this, some in the body of Christ would be strengthened, and through this, others would be saved. Father, save souls through this. Bring more people to the feet of Jesus through this, I pray. Let Jesus be glorified. I pray for your strength, Lord. You know how tired I am. I pray for your strength today. Please see me through. Give me your strength. Glory to Jesus. Amen. That was Dr. Tour. He was praying for us just before our interview with him began. It's amazing how this interview even came together. We cold emailed Dr. James Tour a couple of months after we listened to Dr. G's podcast, God and Science, on which Dr. Tour was a guest. Amazing podcast, highly recommend it. It was a fascinating episode, and Corbin and I both said to ourselves, before Disciples Make was even a thing, we just thought as filmmakers, wouldn't it be cool to film a day in the life of Dr. Tour, a disciple who makes molecules? Little did we know that close to a year later, God would have us do exactly that. Dr. Tour is a synthetic organic chemist. He has over 750 research publications, and in 2021, he was awarded the Royal Society of Chemistry's Centenary Prize for innovations in materials chemistry with applications in medicine and nanotechnology. And for Jim, as he's affectionately known by those close to him, this only scratches the surface of his achievements. Check out his website, drjamestour.com, for a full list. It is extensive, my friends. Back to our interview. Outside of his fascinating work as the professor of chemistry, professor of computer science, and professor of material science and nanoengineering at Rice University, wow, okay, got that done. It was cool to get to know Dr. Tour, a man who loves Jesus. The family of God is really diverse. I was born in New York City, in Manhattan. My first home was in the Bronx, uh, but I really grew up in White Plains, which is just north of the city. It's a suburb just north of the city, maybe like 20 minutes drive north of the city. Um, I had a functional home, a mother and a father. My father was mostly gone. My parents were immigrants and mostly gone. Uh, we were were Jews and uh, um, so my father was working all the time. He was a pharmacist and he had he had a drugstore and to hire a pharmacist cost a lot of money so he would work all the time to be the pharmacist in the store. And. Uh, uh, my mother was a very loving mother. Uh, I always knew that she loved me. Uh, I wasn't a 
a really happy boy. I remember many times contemplating suicide. Uh, I never attempted it. Uh, I remember contemplating taking people with me on my way out. Uh, uh, but but um, I really only had, I think, one friend, one good friend in, in all through, through high school. I found it interesting how Dr. Tour just got right into the depths of his childhood. Right away, he was open. It kind of caught me off guard. But hello, what else did I expect? Our goal was to get to know what Jesus has done and who he is to him. And Jesus has a habit of getting to the depths of who we are and leaving us divinely changed. It's no wonder Dr. Tour let us know immediately about his heart as a kid. Here's more of that story. And soon we'll get to know how he first heard the gospel. I started working at a young age, at the age of 13, I worked in my father's drugstore for a summer. And then at the age of 14, I started working in a gas station on the Hutchison River Parkway, which is a highway that runs north-south out, out of the city. And, and uh, there was a gas station on each side of the road. First job was cleaning restrooms on the highway and uh, uh, cleaning parking lots. And then I started pumping gas. By the age of 15, I was the night manager of the gas station. Uh, I did some sports in high school. And uh, uh, the one that I spent the most time with, uh, that I was the best at, was boxing. At the time, boxing was, was uh, very big in New York City, New York City area. It's, there was no MMA, at least that I knew of. Uh, it was all boxing. Uh, so I did some of that. And then I wanted, I used to meet the policemen who were the, the troopers on the highway. And, and I thought this would be a great job to do that. Um, but I couldn't get into the academy because I was colorblind. And uh, so I thought I'd study forensic science and go work in a crime lab. And, and my dad said, he, he went with me to, to visit some of the programs as, as I was thinking about college. And it was pretty much expected in our home that we would go to college. I mean, uh, the expectation was certainly there in a Jewish home even though we were secular Jews, which means that if you had asked me, I would have said I was Jewish, but I knew little more than that. And uh, um, he said, why don't you just get uh, just a general degree in chemistry? And then once you finish that, then you can specialize in forensics if you want to. And what amazes me is that at the age of 17, I listened to my father and uh, I went to college. And it was Right after I got to college, first load of laundry that I ever did in my life, because my mother always did it for me before that, I was, I was uh, in the laundry room and I met a young man who had played football. He was playing football on the Syracuse University f football team. And I had had dreams in my mind of being a football player. I, I had all the heart for being a football player, but I just wasn't big enough, strong enough, or fast enough. Other than that, I had everything going for me. And uh, um, so in a way, I admired him. And I asked him what he if he was going to play professional ball when he got done with school. He said, oh, I'm not good enough for that. I said, what are you going to do? He says, well, probably lay ministry. And I said, I don't know what that means. He said, like a missionary. He said, missionary? I didn't even know missionaries existed anymore. I thought they'd all been killed a long time ago. 
And I said, why, why do we need missionaries? Why not just use TV? This is 1977. I mean, TV can get it into any place that needs to be gotten. And he said to me, can I give you an illustration of the gospel? He perceived, and rightly so, that I didn't know anything about Jesus. I don't know about you, but when I perceive that someone I'm talking to doesn't know anything about Jesus, a lot of things come to mind before thinking of asking them if I can give them an illustration of the gospel. Mainly because I don't know how to draw that well, but also because there's a bunch of other stuff going on, like how do I get to this at an angle that's comfortable for me, etc., etc. Granted, nothing's wrong with those thoughts, but hearing this definitely convicted me. I want to be like that guy. And so he, I, when he said, he, could he give me an illustration of the gospel? He was an art major, so I thought he was going to draw a picture, and he actually did. So he set a time, he came to my room, and he drew a picture of, of the, the, the typical bridge illustration. And that's to have a man on one side, God on the other, and a chasm separating the two. A chasm of sin. That sin separates us, one from the other. And he had me read the verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I said, I'm not a sinner. I mean, I, I never killed anybody. I never robbed a bank. How could I be a sinner? And he then turned to Matthew 5:28, And it's written, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And that really shook me. It shook me because I was addicted to pornography from the age of 14. I had found magazines in the parking lots. The, the, the salesmen would often throw away these magazines on their way home, especially Friday nights after their, their sales week. And, and uh, we never had those in my home. If, we, if my father had had them, I'd have found them. Because uh, kids pick through everything. And, and, uh, uh, and I became addicted by that time. By the time I was 18, I was heavily addicted to pornography, and I didn't think anybody knew. Here I was at college, I mean, and I felt like the words of Jesus just exposed me. And he said that if you look at a woman with lust for her, and I didn't know how to look at a woman any other way. That's the only way I knew. And, and um, you've committed adultery already in your heart. How can I commit adultery in my heart? I knew that adultery was wrong. That's one of the Ten Commandments. I, I was enough of a Jew to know that. And uh, I knew the Ten Commandments. Um, but everything in my context that I knew, and this is not true with Orthodox Judaism, but with secular Judaism, it's, it's what you do. It's not what you think. It's not what's just in your heart. You have to do something. And, but he had my attention. Because it was at that moment, first time in my life, I ever realized that I was a sinner. Why should I even care what a man said 2,000 years ago? I didn't know that Jesus was Jewish. Who knew? I thought he was Christian. I didn't know. And why should I even care? Remember earlier when I talked about how Jesus has a habit of getting to the depths of who we are? This is what I'm talking about. The word became flesh, and he dwelt amongst us, and he told us the truth. Thank you, Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 puts it this way. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, I'm done interrupting. Let me let the man tell his story. But for some reason it shook me. And then we went through a few more verses, for example, from Ephesians, that it, it's, it's not by works that you can be saved, but it's by faith. And, and this whole idea that my good works are some, gonna, some way going to outweigh my bad works, and I'll be all right. And what I find is everybody, everybody all over the world that I talk to about these things, they always feel that, well, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. If my good works outweigh my bad works, I'll be okay. And the Bible says something very different. It says you, you can't do it. You'll never be good enough. And I remember him saying he drew these arrows from my side pointing down. And he says your good works aren't necessarily bad, but they'll never get you across to God because he's perfect and you're not. And, uh, uh, and then it says that, that uh, uh, he offers us salvation through faith. I said, what's, what's this salvation? What saved me? He says, it means you're forever with God. By faith, something I do in my heart can make me an adulterer. Something I do in my heart can get me saved. Judaism is all about works. I mean, we wear a kuppah uh, and, you know, to show God that we're, we're serious about him. We do all these, these, these little acts to show that we're serious about him. And uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of works that we're, we're running around to do. And this was very different. It's, the works just couldn't do it. And then, then when he got, when he got to this verse that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Romans ten nine. And I didn't even know what this meant. And he did his best in explaining it to me. And and uh, I just felt heavily convicted. I think if he if he was better at it, he could have sealed the deal right there and then. I just love Dr. Tour's honesty. A very practical man. Okay, so the deal wasn't sealed, but seeds were definitely planted. Before we get to Dr. Tour's salvation story, let's find out how he even got to that campus in college where the footballer illustrated the gospel to him. From managing a gas station as a teenager, to deciding to study synthetic organic chemistry, and then later having the gospel illustrated to you. How did that deal get sealed? So why, why an organic chemist of all fields? Well, I started studying chemistry in college, and, and um, I loved organic chemistry. I took it as a sophomore, and I was like, wow, this is amazing, where you learn how to stitch together molecules. Now, I would, I would get rooms, I'd go find an empty classroom on a Friday night, lots of empty classrooms on campus. And I would work all the problems in the textbook that had not been assigned. That's how much I loved this stuff. And I just worked through it. On weekends, football weekends, when everybody was going to the game, I'd go to the library. It was quiet in there. And I'd get a room, and I would just go through one problem after another. I loved this stuff. And I had always thought that, you know, I'd... I'd work in a crime lab, and then I thought, no, I'm going to work in industry. And then I thought, well, why do I want to work in industry? I got saved on a college campus, 
And I loved the campus life. I loved the experience of it, so I thought I'd become a professor. So when I started graduate school to get a graduate degree, I thought, okay, I'll just go work toward being a professor. That way I never have to leave campus. And, uh, uh, and so you get, you get uh, mentored on, on how to do this. And the man with whom I worked later uh, won the Nobel Prize in chemistry years after I had worked with him. Uh, but, you know, they, 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 they teach us, they instruct us on how to do this. And, and uh, we learn certain things and, and, and I observed him. And then I went and I did a postdoc and I observed somebody else and how they run their research group. So you, you get an idea of how to do these sort of things. And then the nice thing about organic chemistry is you can, you can think of something, set up the reaction and have the answer the same day. You can't do that in physics. You, you're writing proposals for years to get the money to work on an idea. And then you set up something for years in order to test it to see if that idea will ever work. I can think of an idea, walk in a lab, and test it the very same day. The, the startup cost, once you have your laboratory to go in and try another idea, is like very little. And, and uh, so you can try new ideas all the time. Like I said, a practical man. It just made sense to do organic chemistry. We've learned a little bit about Dr. Tour's upbringing and what got him to the point of synthetic organic chemistry, but our series is called Disciples Make. You're probably wondering, what exactly does this disciple of Christ make? And how did he meet Christ? Well, he builds molecules. That's literally what he makes. I'll spare you my paraphrasing and let him explain. And then a little after that, we're finding out about how he met Jesus. And it is something amazing about building molecules and working at that level, because molecules are what affect life. Molecules are what affect materials that we work with, molecular structure, how the molecules interact with one another. Uh, this is what affects life. This is what affects our thoughts. This is what affects every material with which we interact. So I can look, I can look at a carpet, for example, and I, I know why you can take a carpet fiber, you walk across the carpet and, and uh, it springs right back. Uh, uh, why you sit on a, on a foam cushion seat and it springs right back. If that were just cotton, you know, it would depress and you, you'd see a person had sat there. I mean, wh why do these have the properties that they have? Why does wood have the properties that it has? I know all this because I know the molecular structure. So then I know how to modify it in order to change the properties. I know why glass has the properties that it has. And so then we can, we can modify them and change them. I know what molecules do in the body and how they interact with one another. So I know how to now modify them to influence that interaction. Um, so e e even when I'm sitting and talking to you, I mean, I, I just, my mind is, is, is thinking about 
the chemistry that's happening in your eyes. Uh, uh, there's, there's these molecules that, 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 that are undergoing a, a, a transdesis isomerization. And, and then these relax back and there's this firing into your brain and, and now all of a sudden that's going into electronic functions that are happening very quickly and then that, that then goes into protein synthesis. It's right now, it's happening in your brain. And then when you go to sleep tonight, that will then form hardwired interconnections that'll give you long-term memory from that. So, so who knows that? Only I do, you know? Very few of us know that. And so it, 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 it helps me to see so much more than what the common person sees because you understand the molecules from which we're made. Wow. Our maker, God, I mean, is truly awe-inspiring. I was curious to know about how knowing this about God's design and molecules and life affects Dr. Tour's work. What does this all mean in relation to his relationship with God? Being a follower of Jesus guides me in my work. Jesus said of his Father, He who sent me is trustworthy in John chapter 8. He who sent me is trustworthy. I trust him. I trust him. He who called me, Jesus, is trustworthy. I trust him. How does it affect my work? I trust him. This is, this is a hard job in the sense that I have a big laboratory. I have to pay everybody in my laboratory by getting grant money. And uh, uh, this is a business that's for young people. I mean, it's a lot of work. And even to this age, I'm in my office 65 hours a week. And, and uh, uh, it's a lot of work, but I trust him. He's always made it so that that I get the grant money when I need it. I mean, sometimes it's been tight. Sometimes it's been less tight. And uh, he guides us into ways. I said, Lord, guide us. Lord, teach us. And there's a man in Exodus 31. His name is Bezalel. Bezalel was the man whom Moses commissioned to build the tabernacle. And God says, I've taken Bezalel. He says, I've chosen Bezalel the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, and in knowledge of all sorts of craftsmanship. The first person ever to be saved of him that he's filled with the Spirit of God was not a prophet. It was Bezalel. He was a craftsman. First person in the Bible to ever say that he was filled with the Spirit of God. God gave him wisdom first, then understanding, and last of all, knowledge. Because if, if I know things without having the wisdom and understanding, I might do dastardly things with it. And then it says of Bezalel that he could work in gold, in silver, and in bronze. He could work in stone cutting and in stone setting. He could work in wood, in fabric, and in perfuming. And he had the ability to teach it. God raised up another craftsman by his side and in Exodus 31 and Exodus 36. It lists all they could do. I said, Lord, make me like Bezalel. Lord, make my students like Bezalel. Give us discoveries because in this business, it's not how smart you are. No way. It's how creative you are. 
when people see that paper that you've written, they're like, wow, I wish I'd have thought of that. That's amazing. Lord, make me like Bezalel. Lord, make me like Bezalel. Wow. Writing that prayer in my journal right away. Okay, not right away, because I, I need to finish this, but I kind of pressed on this a little more because I found it so interesting. Humans are captivated by beauty, by excellence, and in our desire for humility, I think as believers, we can sometimes sell ourselves short about what God can do through us. So I asked. I asked Dr. Tour about his thoughts on this. And also, we'll be getting to know how he met Jesus right after this promise. I want to do well in my career. I really do. I pray to that end. I, I remember when I was applying for jobs in academia, and I was at Stanford doing a postdoc, and other people in the lab, and in the labs next to my lab, under different professors, we were all applying to the same positions all over the country. And I would interview, and then that person would be there the next day interviewing. And, and I thought, how can I compete with these people? These people were really good. I was just a regular guy. I'm just telling I was just regular, regular guy. And, and uh, on, these, on these interviews, uh, you know, I just said, Lord, let me shine on the interviews. When I give these talks, let me shine. When I give the talk, let them get hit by the power of the Holy Spirit. These other folks don't have that. Let them get hit by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let people see something genuine in what I'm talking about. Let me command the English language while I'm speaking. Let me be able to communicate this. And it'll be different. And I want to be excellent in my job. And this whole thing that, oh, I've got to be humble. Excuse me for living. I'm very sorry I'm alive and getting in your way here. This is a bunch of nonsense. This is not the humility that the Bible is talking about. This is a false humility to keep us from standing for the Lord, keep us from having to stand for the Lord. We are told to go out and we are to, to influence. We are to be an influenced people. And we can go out and do well. We can do these things. And I will take these things up and we will do well. This is something that we will do. This is something that we will project and go forward with. And I want my students to do well. I want them to write good papers. I want to write solid papers. I want to write people papers that people can reproduce our work. I'm not trying to hide it at all. And uh, I want people to be able to do this. And, and, and I encourage people to trust Jesus and to walk out with him uh, and, and walk with Jesus and, and really ask him to help you in your work so that you can really excel. Uh, uh, I, I pray all the time, Lord, make this lecture the best lecture ever in this department. Lord, make this, this work that we're doing as we're, I write this paper. Give me the hands of, of a scribe, Lord, as I write this paper. Lord, do that for me. Do you think God in heaven is going to say, look at that person, they're not humble enough. I'm not going to give them that. I mean, come on. I mean, that's not the God that I know. I think it's, it's, it's not knowing God well to think that you, 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 you have to keep quiet about these things. James tells us in, in James chapter 4, you do not receive because you do not ask. So the main reason we do not receive things is because we flat out do not ask. So I ask of God. And he can sort out what he wants to give me and not give me. It's up to him. I trust him. I trust that if he does not, if the, if the answer is no, or if the answer is wait, I trust him. I'll tell you, there's a lot of times that I have prayed for things that he has not given them to me. And I look back so thankful 
So I trust God that he filters my prayers and doesn't just willy-nilly give me everything I ask for. That'd be terrible. I don't want a genie in a bottle. I, I want God to give me that which is good, that which will make me a better person, that which will glorify him. Amen. That which would glorify him. Really cool to see childlike faith in such a seasoned professional and man of God displayed in such an undeniable way. Okay, let's hear about how Dr. Twer met Jesus, him whom he so fervently desires to glorify in all he does. His story to knowing Christ starts with joy. He picks up the story a couple of months after the footballer friend illustrated the gospel story to him. You know, the guy I want to emulate in my life when I share the gospel with people. Yeah, that guy. But I, I went several months um, after that, and I attended a little Bible study three or four times on my floor. They were going through the Gospel of John. But more than that, I met people that said that they were born-again Christians. Now, I had heard Jimmy Carter say he was a born-again Christian. I had no idea what he meant. It sounded like a strange way to say it to me. Why didn't he say reborn? Why didn't he say born again? 18 years old, you're carrying a tray in the cafeteria. It's very embarrassing. You're looking around. You don't want to, you don't want to sit alone. And there was this table of people there. Said, hey, come and join us. Come sit with us. It's better than sitting alone. And it turned out these were, these were all born-again Christians, all of them. And I noticed that they prayed before they ate, but that wasn't what really struck me. What struck me was their laughter. What I had known is if there's a group of people laughing, they're usually laughing at somebody, and all of us have been on the receiving end of that laughter, and it's painful. And I had the same insecurities that every teenager has. And uh, I felt very secure around them. They weren't going to be laughing at me. And uh, um, so I was amazed at the kindness in their laughter. They were just enjoying each other. November 7th, 1977, I'm all alone in my room. And I don't know why I got on my knees. Most Jews stand when they pray. Most Christians I had seen sit. And I said, Lord, forgive me because I'm a sinner. All of a sudden, I felt this enormous forgiveness coming over me. Just, just amazing forgiveness. And peace just filled this room. And then all of a sudden, off to my right, there was a man standing. I remember looking to my right. There was a man standing, but I couldn't see him. It wasn't that I saw him, but the presence was so strong. I was already on my knees. I went right flat down on my face, just weeping hands extended that I couldn't even see. But it was just kindness poured out, mercy. There was no fear. I wasn't afraid at all. And I knew this was Jesus. How I knew, I don't know. I just knew this was Jesus. So kind, so gracious. He does this for Jews often. He gives them some sort of appearance of himself. He does this for Muslims, often, with some sort of appearance for himself. Gentiles ask me why. I, I think because we need it. We need a little bit more. Jews and Muslims need a little bit more. And so he gives us that. And, and uh, he wasn't going away. 
I don't even know how long I was there. I was just weeping. And uh, the next thing I remember, I'm standing up, wiping my face. I wasn't, I didn't know what to say. I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what to say. I, what's this Jewish kid from New York City gonna say? I didn't know who to say anything to. And, and then, then uh, about two weeks later, the guy, this football player guy who had shared with me, he said to me, he lived on my floor. He said, Jim, have you received Jesus in your heart? I said, I think I have. Why do you ask? He said, you haven't stopped smiling for weeks. Something different about you. And I said, you know, I feel different. How can I keep this feeling? Because I've never felt so close to God before. And I, I, uh, I was always thinking about Jesus now. And I didn't want to disappoint him. He said, if you read your Bible every day, you'll stay close to God. If you don't, you won't. That was 45 years ago. I've read my Bible every day. So a few years after that, I just started reading in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And I work my way to Revelation 22, pick up where I left off the day before. When I'm done, I start again. And I just have this pattern of daily reading. And, and uh, I'm in no hurry. Sometimes I can spend days in a couple of paragraphs. If he wanted me to read the Bible in a year, he'd have said, finish this book in a year. It's not written. I just, I just go until I feel okay. I'm done with this portion and I go on. And I love God so much. You know, I, I think it's important that when I, when you share with Jews, when I share with Jews, that I'm not trying to convert them from Judaism. I want them to be a better Jew. I was born a Jew, I'm gonna die a Jew. Paul said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. None, none of the disciples ever called themselves Christians. They were Jews. Christians are what other people called them. King Agrippa said, you're gonna make me into a Christian. They were called Christians in Antioch to the point that it was almost a derogatory term and Peter says, look, don't be ashamed when they call you that name. He's saying, when they call you that name, don't be ashamed of the, of the name Christian. And, and uh, they all felt that they were Jews. You go to Israel today. My daughter lives in Israel. The, the believers there, they don't call themselves Christians. They call themselves believers. And uh, uh, it's important to know that I'm not, I'm not trying to take a, a Jew and make them into a Christian. I want them to be a better Jew. I'm a much better Jew than I was when I was a secular Jew. I mean, because I really am seeking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what I want to do, is I want to show people the way to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the Bible, for Jews, it's called teshuva, return. You're returning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Return, he says, return. Now, of course, we had to find out more about Jesus coming into his room. We've just heard the powerful recollection. But in my short time of knowing him as a practical man, I just had to find out why he believes. As if he hadn't already explained enough. <laughs> but as believers, practically, we're instructed to always have a defense for our faith. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So I pressed Dr. Tour on this. I knew he could take it. When Jesus came in my room, I did not even know that he's the Jewish Messiah. I didn't know. I just knew that someone appeared in my room and forgave me and his presence was so wonderful. And I started to read the New Testament. It's so Jewish. I mean, people ask me, how can you be a Jew and be following this Jesus? I'm like, how can you be a Gentile and follow Jesus? The New Testament is so Jewish. It's, it's right there. And, and um, I didn't even realize, all I knew is I felt forgiven and I felt close to God. And it wasn't until later that I realized this is the Messiah. This is the one that we're waiting for. This is Jesus. And, and uh, I love him so much. I mean, I will, I will give my life a hundred times for Jesus if I could. He has been so good to me. I shall forever be grateful to him for the way he's given himself for me. This Jesus lives to make intercession on my behalf, the Bible says. Imagine that. The Son of God prays for me. He lives to make intercession on my behalf. He intercedes for me. So kind, so kind. Dr. Tour's fervency in his faith and his work are two things you'll learn immediately about him. Or at least it won't take you too long to find out. And those two aspects of his life are what we really focused on in this interview. It's what drew our attention to him. Because science and faith are usually depicted as being at odds in the media and schools and even books. When I became a believer not too long ago, I naturally wanted to know more about this. I have my practicalities too, you know. My husband Corbin and I are keenly interested in this topic. So interested that we found a scientist, Dr. Tour, one of the best in the world, who we could interview to talk about it. And so, Dr. Tour, are science and faith at odds? By the way, if you want to watch this interview and see Dr. Tour's work life in his labs and lectures, go to our YouTube channel, Disciples Make. You'll find plenty to watch. It's pretty cool. Science and faith are not at odds. Science has never shaken my faith, never. You know, I came to know the Lord at the age of 18. I wasn't much of a scientist then, but I came to love Jesus. And there is nothing, nothing that I've ever learned in science that is conflicted with the Word of God, with the Bible. Now, there are certain interpretations that people might have about the Bible, this, this reading my own thoughts into the Bible, this, this, this exegesis, it's called. And, and uh, that may be wrong. You know, we, we, my interpretation of something would be wrong, but I've never seen it conflict with a scientific fact. There are certain scientific facts, like water is H2O, that doesn't change. You may have isotopomers, but that doesn't change. Uh, that's a fact. There are theories that may conflict with the Bible, but theories come and go, they change all the time. I've never seen it conflict with anything in the Bible. But what it does for me, it lets me see science in a different way, that when I discover things, I see the hand of God. I see the glory of God. And especially when you study materials, you study biological systems, and you say, wow, the way this thing has been made. You know, there's a, 
There's a bar. There's a bar in our ear. It vibrates when we hear sound. The bar has a different modulus as you go along, meaning the stiffness of this bar changes as you go along it. That's not an easy thing to build in material science. It can be done. It's not easy to make. But it's because of that that we can hear this diversity of sound. You think about that and what a design that is. And if you say it just evolved that way, it's totally unsatisfying. And the man who first described this to me was a biophysicist at the Weissman Institute in Israel. And I said, how did something like that evolve? He said, oh, Jim. We, we all believe in evolution, but we have no idea how it works. And so this is really what it is. I mean, people are talking, but they have no idea, no idea that it works like this. Biologists are, are so, so false to the reality of what's there. You ask a biologist, why, why is the brain the way it is? Why is it this way? And they will, they will say, well, it's just evolved this way, which is a totally unsatisfying answer. If you ask a physicist, why is there gravity? Why? Why is it the two bodies attract? Why is there gravity? An honest physicist would say to you, why don't you just ask me why is there matter? These are things we do not know. And they'll be honest about it. Physicists are far more honest about what they do not know. Biologists are not true to themselves. It evolved this way is not an answer why, why it is the way it is. You ponder that for a while. That's a real mystery. Why is the brain the way it is? And, and uh, um, so science is, is extraordinary. We can, we can define gravity. I mean, we, we can work with it amazingly so that you can, you can have a, a projectile land exactly where you want it to be, and the place where you want it to land is on the moon. I mean, you, you can do it with that sort of precision when you understand the gravitational forces. But why? Why is there gravity? We don't know. We don't know. Something as simple as that. What is energy? What is it really? You can describe it, but what is it? These things are, are just fundamental concepts and it's very hard. What is life? What is life? And, and uh, uh, when something dies, what was it that was just lost? Everything's about intact. What is it that was just lost? We don't even know how to define what it is we just lost. We can define the characteristics of life. No problem. Life has certain characteristics. But what is it? Science has no answer. So there's a lot that we're clueless on. I've never seen science conflict with my faith. In fact, science has made me, I mean, faith has made me much more true to my science, where I can much more honestly say, I have the foggiest idea why gravity exists. I don't know why.
The series is called Disciples Make, so we're always naturally curious to learn what discipleship looked like in the early years of being a believer for our guests and what they're currently doing to disciple others. Dr. Tour's frankness and his understanding of his own function in the body of Christ and spreading the gospel were interesting to learn about. Concerning discipleship, I don't think I'm very good at it. I love to lead people to Jesus. Uh, it's something I just love to do. If I go a week without leading somebody to Jesus in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I feel as if it's been a wasted week. And I will go back to the Lord and I say, Lord, why don't you just take me home now? If you're not gonna let me see at least one person a week come to the feet of my Lord Jesus, just take me home, raise up somebody that can do this. And what he does is the next week, he'll generally give me two or three. He is so good and gracious. And I have people that I then set up with these new converts and that will disciple them, that take them through these steps. And we use different materials for this. And we use Growing in Christ by the Navigators Campus Ministry. It's a, just a 13-week program. And every time I lead somebody to the Lord, I teach them how to read the Bible slowly, pensively, deliberately, starting in the Gospel according to John, reading one verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then stop and read it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then say, Lord, speak to me through this passage, speak to me. Then read it in parts, in the beginning, in the beginning. Reflect on that, before there was time, in the beginning was the Word. Word, this is something abstract, was the Word. Then it says, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So now this Word is God. And then verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He was there with God in the beginning. And verse 3 talks about nothing was made apart from him that has been made. And now it keeps referring to word as him. The word is person now. We say him to someone who's a person. Then I say, when you get to verse 14 of John, chapter one, your mind blow. And you might only get, I want 15 minutes a day out of you. For the rest of your life, every day for the rest of your life, you are going to start by reading in the Bible and you're going to pick up where you left off the day before. You might only get five verses in in 15 minutes. That's okay. Pick up at verse 6 and work your way through the gospel according to John and then through the whole New Testament and then through the Bible. Do this because I know if they're in the Word of God, they're going to be just fine. But along with that, they have this little booklet, 13 Weeks of Growing in Christ, and I hook them up with somebody for that. You're actually welcome to go to Dr. Tour's website and contact him for a one-hour, one-on-one talk with him about Jesus. If you are someone who doesn't believe in the death, burial, and physical resurrection of Christ, seriously, you can talk to him yourself, to sincerely, and the key here is sincerely, find out more about Jesus. And he only offers this to those who don't believe in Christ, of course. I would take him up on that offer if you're curious. Now, let's hear what Dr. Tour had to say about his own discipleship when he was a new believer. How was I discipled? I, 
I could have been discipled by the Navigators Campus Ministry because that young man that had shared the gospel with me was in Navigators. I didn't. I went to some of their meetings. They were very strange to me. These, these were college students sitting on the floor with their legs, you know, pretzel style, as if they're five years old, clapping hands and singing songs at their meetings. And to me, that felt like kindergartner. I was coming from a Jewish background. This was odd to me. And a Jewish background meaning that I wasn't in the synagogues either. I was just secular Jewish. This felt so silly to me. I didn't participate. I'm not proud of that. I'm just saying I didn't. And so a while later, somebody invited me to a church. And this was a church of Indians, uh, Asian Indians, and they were serious about the Lord. And their worship time, everybody stopped and got on their knees in the church, everybody in the church. And I said, I get on my knees. And they started one by one, lifting up praise to God, thanking God for what he had done in their lives. And occasionally a person would start a song and others would sing along with them, but one after another. And that's what really got me. And I got involved in that church, and I joined their discipleship program. I moved into a house with nine other Christian guys, and it wasn't comfortable in the physical sense. Uh, we had 10 guys living in a house. There were two bathrooms. In one of the bathrooms, the shower worked, and in the other bathroom, the commode worked. And so you're going to have to use both facilities if, if you wanted to get through your morning. And so I just showered on campus. <laughs> just went to the gym on campus. But, but um, uh, I became part of that program. And it was a discipleship program, and we would rise up early in the morning, we'd have meetings, and we'd have Bible meetings, and we'd do evangelism. That's how I learned how to do door-to-door -door evangelism. That's how I learned to talk to people. And I was discipled by men that really loved God really loved God, by a man named T.E. Koshi, who's written a book called The Invested Life, with Joel Rosenberg, who also was discipled by T.E. Koshi. And, uh, uh, and he wrote in the book The Invested Life, which talks about this. And then also by a man named Brother Bhakt Singh from India. You have to be an older person to, to have remembered him. And, uh, and then later on by some other people, a man named Buck Hatch, who was a professor at what was Columbia Bible College and Seminary. Uh, I didn't attend the seminary, but he and I became good friends, and, and he discipled me. So, I, and, and then another man, Del Brosma, when I was in graduate school, my pastor, he was a professor at Purdue University in entomology, the study of insects, but he was the pastor of the church, and he discipled me. So I was trained by men that really loved Jesus, and I saw what it was to pray, to devote your life to Jesus, to serve him. That was demonstrated to me. And I'm thankful for the training and the discipleship, the discipleship that I've had. Whenever I look back on my first year of knowing Christ, I am always so grateful that my experience was positive. Corbin and I were surrounded by people who loved us and cared to model what it meant to follow Jesus, as well as what it meant to know him personally and his word. What a solid rock we have in the ancient of days, our Lord Jesus Christ. To end things off, Dr. Tur wanted to let you, the public, know about something. If you've watched his YouTube channel, simply called Dr. James Tour, the following statement won't be a surprise to you. 
Lately, I've been spending a lot of time dealing with an issue called origin of life. Uh, I was kind of drawn into this thing, and and uh, but now I'm on a on a drive to expose what do we really know in science and what do we not know because scientists are absolutely clueless on life's origin. Something as fundamental as life, we do not know where it came from scientifically. We are clueless on it. And so I, I am spending a lot of my time and energy um, making videos and writing papers on the origin of life to show how clueless we are, how the science itself that is done to show where life has come from, the science itself screams out, this is not how it could have been done. All you're showing is how it was not done. You're not showing how it was done. And something as fundamental as where did life come from in the first place, we don't know. As scientists, we just don't know. So I'm spending a lot of time on that, and it's caused me to take a lot of flack from people. Uh, uh, because they think that this has been well figured out. It's not, and that's why very few will confront me on this. Very few people who understand, who are scientists, will confront me on this. Uh, and the few that have confronted me, I confront them in return. And those who haven't yet been confronted in return, it's coming. We hope you enjoy today's episode of Disciples Make. Remember, our YouTube channel is our visual library where we have videos of each guest that we interview. We actually go on location as a crew and shoot the entire interview beautifully, as well as capture a day or a couple of days in the life of our guests so that we can get as full of a perspective as possible about everything that they talk about, including what they make. So go check that out at Disciples Make on YouTube and hit our subscribe button while you're there. Thanks in advance. We appreciate your support. Until next time. God bless you. My name is James Tour. I'm a chemist, a professor of chemistry, material science, and nanoengineering, and computer science. And I love Jesus, and I believe that he has physically risen from the dead.